Well, if you will, this morning, get your Bibles out. Let's open to John chapter 19, page 1248 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We're working our way through John. We're getting close to the end. Although it's going to take us a while to get there, we can't be in a hurry through these passages. And some of you are saying, we've been in a hurry? No, well, we haven't been in a hurry. But maybe it'll go slower than it has. I know. John 19. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before your word and pray now, God, that this perfect and errant gift that we are before, that you have given us, your words breathed out by you, intended for us as your people to change us, to transform us. There is no power like this power. God, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear this morning. Lord, that we will experience what your word has for us today. We'll know we're in your presence. And we will obey what you command us to do. That you might be glorified. Open up our eyes, Lord. Let us see you afresh and anew today. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember a few years ago now was listening to an interview with Jim Caviezel. He's the actor that portrayed Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And I don't remember all the things he said because he kept saying things that were so shocking and stunning to me that I would miss the next five things he would say. But what I do remember is I remember him talking about what playing Jesus in that film did to him uh, physically and spiritually. And he talked about how when they started uh, filming, from the time they started filming until the production was complete, he lost over 50 pounds uh, just of the excruciating nature of portraying Jesus. And uh, he talked about how as he... Uh, hung on the cross in that crucifixion scene, uh, he, his body appeared blue in the, in the film and that that wasn't makeup and that he was literally freezing as he was hanging there just shivering and trying to remain in position, I guess you will. And then he talked about how during the filming of that crucifixion scene, Lightning actually struck the cross that he was hanging on. And that after the filming of that movie, he had to have heart surgery because of the effects of the shock that he took. I remember thinking to myself, what? Wow. I remember when... That movie came out, and I remember uh, we rented, we rented uh, multiple showings. I think four or five theaters full of tickets, and we all went to see it. And uh, 
As one of the pastors, I was in each of those showings, and it was the same thing every time. Uh, by the end, I was just almost in agony. The first time I saw it was enough. I didn't need to see it again. I certainly didn't need to see it again. I think I saw it three times in one weekend, and that was just, I felt like I was being tortured. But when the movie was over, you remember, those of you that saw it, there was just utter silence in the room. No one was moving. No one was talking. There was nothing, just silence. And then slowly people would start to, you know, no one jumped up and you just had to sort of recalibrate and come back to reality for a second or maybe leave reality and come back to what you wish wasn't reality. But we come this morning to a passage of Scripture in John where John is going to give his account of the single most significant event in all of human history. As Pastor Matt preached on last week, Pilate will deliver Jesus to the Jews knowing their intent is to crucify Him. But as we think about the cross, first I want us to, to think about the fact that the cross is in some ways good, in some ways bad. It's a familiar symbol. So if you have your listening guide, your number one, point number one, is it's a familiar symbol. It's a symbol that we see all over the place and used in so many different contexts. And oftentimes it's used in ways that I'm sure the people that are using it have no idea what it really signifies. I wonder sometimes if, if we ask them, um, what does that cross mean that's hanging around your neck? I heard someone say one time that uh, they wanted a cross they could wear as a piece of jewelry. And so I perked up, and normally if you say jewelry, I run the other way. But in this case, I perked up, and Lisa wasn't around, so it was safe. I perked up and thought, so I asked a couple questions. And I remember they said to me, well, I just haven't decided if I want the plain one or the one with the little man on it. I thought, you probably shouldn't get a cross. Just, just get something else. John 19, the context we'll set beginning in verse 13. We'll sort of catch ourselves up. Here's what the scripture says, beginning in 13. When Pilate therefore heard, he heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that they called the pavement, but in Hebrew it was Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but 
Caesar. Then they, then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Now, there's some things we can see in these first few verses that sort of help us understand the confusion of this moment. Uh, first of all, it's evidenced in the fact that Jesus is never formally sentenced. Here's a person who has endured six trials. And yet, there's no formal sentence. The, the verb that John uses, then he delivered him. That word delivered, it, it means to surrender, to yield up, to, to give over. It's, it's clarifying that there's, there's, no, there's been no formal sentence against this man to whom they're about to crucify. Mark chapter 15 tells us that Pilate was motivated strictly to appease the crowd. And we heard that last week. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but deep within him, his greatest fear was the fear of man and not the fear of God. And so they deliver him over to be crucified. Now this issue of crucifixion, you know, it's so removed from us in so many ways. It's hard for us to, to get our heads around what this would have been like. Because even in our culture today, when it comes to capital punishment, when, when we execute someone for some criminal act, it is done privately. It is done swiftly. We try to do it in the most efficient clean, swift, private way possible. Uh, you, don't, you don't see that as a public spectacle. You don't, uh, people don't linger on. And if they do, there's great outrage and uh, outcry because something didn't work correctly and the person didn't immediately die. Now the cross of crucifixion is not it's not polished or esteemed it's it loomed menacingly over the horizon outside of the city people would would see those beams sticking up out of the the ground and they would be this constant reminder casting the shadow of doom for those who would be foolish enough to commit a crime that would lead to that punishment. Crucifixion by design was, it was a message to the masses that criminal activity doesn't pay. The motivation behind the gruesomeness of this act was all about deterrence. The Romans were utterly convinced that if you made the punishment so horrific that people would, from fear, obey the laws of the land. You see, the, the brutality and the humiliation, they were not only emphasized, but they were publicized. It was all about making it as bad as possible, but allowing as many as possible to witness. To see a person crucified, 
would be for us in this day and time such a life-altering experience. We would be so deeply scarred. There's little doubt in my mind that any of us would ever fully recover. Some people, over time, have gotten the false impression that Jesus was this helpless victim of a failed plan. That as he hung on the cross, the, the world jeered. It was blind to the reality of what was happening before them. But it's led some to take the position that he's this pitiful martyr. That the cross is a, is a representation of his failure. And that he failed to do what he endeavored to do and ended up on the cross unable to free himself and sort of by default ended up establishing a new religion. Well, that is precisely why I entitled this message this morning, Death by Intention. Because if ever there was a death by intention, it is this one. For example, what we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 is Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. And as he's addressing the Jews, here's what he says. These will come up on the screen. Beginning in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter's telling them that you are guilty, although it is God's perfect purpose and foreknowledge. Then in Acts chapter 3, the scripture says, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. We can look at Old Testament prophecy. One of my favorites is Psalm 22, where the scripture says, beginning in verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing. They cast lots. That's 950 years. Prior to the birth of Christ. The scripture says. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That he would have his bones not broken. But pulled out of joint. That his clothing would be divided. That they would cast lots. That he would be scorned and mocked. 950 years. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be the object of misery and pain. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. That he would be crucified among thieves. So understand, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the farthest thing from some impulsive act committed by a mob who has run amok by their emotions. No, no. It is 
evil people fully capable of making decisions in free will, executing the Son of God by the perfect plan of God. So the cross was the predetermined perfect plan of God who is always good and utterly sovereign. See, I need to remind myself of that before we move forward this morning because I can promise you it's a rough conversation. It's been hard this week to carry the weight of this message. To try to disconnect myself and uh, just live in the moment has been almost impossible. I've had that strange feeling all week that everywhere I went and everything I did, I was sort of halfway engaged in what was going on around me, but the other half of me was still holding on to this information. So for the next few moments, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to walk where Jesus walked. And I assure you, it's, it's not an easy path. So number two is a foul spectacle. It is for sure a foul spectacle. Now, all the gospel writers give account of exactly what happened with Jesus. Now, John being the last gospel to be written and being different than the other three gospels, chooses to focus on different areas than Matthew, for example, did. And so we know that once Pilate turned Jesus over, delivered him to the Jews, that Matthew 27 tells us that the first thing that happened to Jesus that day was scourging. Now remember, he's been up all night. There's been no sleep. It's been a, an all-night affair. And now as the dawn is breaking, it's the early morning hours. Pilate is done, tired, going home to lay his head down. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 26, Then they released Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's Pilate. The act of scourging was... A horrific act in and of itself. It would have been committed upon a, a low, thick stump or pole. Normally it would have been about knee high. So that at the base of it there would have been four metal rings to attach both ankles and both wrists to. And so the condemned person would be bent over this Stump and would be attached hands and feet to the ground as to not be able to move from their position. The torturer 
was known as a lictor. L-I-C-T-O-R. This individual would have been a professional in the art of torture. Now his instrument of torture, most of you would know it as a cat of nine tails. It's known as a flagellum. Now the flagellum was an instrument. It had a wooden handle that would have been about 14 inches long, round, that he would have held onto. And onto that would have been connected these leather straps. On these leather straps would have been connected at the ends pieces of bone, pieces of glass, little shards of metal would have been woven into the ends of these straps of leather as to give them weight and to create uh, the destructive results that were desired. The soldier that performed this act He would have stood about six feet away from Jesus as he was tied across that stump or to the base of that pole. He would bring the whip back over his head and and then he would bring it forward with all of his force as those leather straps whistled through the air. On impact, they would make a a dull, drum-like sound as they embedded into the flesh of the individual. It would have not only been in the back, the rib cage, but the straps would have reached around to the stomach and the sides of the victim as the bits of bone and glass and metal began to rip away at the flesh, a slow, heavy rhythm would begin to evolve with the whipping. The lictor would repeatedly keep the whip crashing against the victim. One historian I read this week writes, this practice would reduce the victim's body to strips of raw flesh and inflamed, bleeding wounds. It was not uncommon for people to die on the stump. I read historical information about people who went insane while being scourged. Invariably, the victims would almost always pass out due to the pain. You get the sense of why the Romans referred to scourging as halfway death. After the scourging was complete, the way they would awaken the victim is they would take a bucket of salt water and throw it on their wounds. They would take pain and they would add it to pain in order to revive the victim. So no doubt when that salty water ran into those wounds, they would awaken. But the suffering would not end there. The Scripture says that then the cruel soldiers now began to... to encircle Christ's bloody body like vultures moving in on a 
carcass. If we continue in Matthew 27, these will come up on the screen. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium where they gathered the whole garrison around him. So there's literally hundreds of soldiers there. And they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. Then they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat upon him, and then they took the reed from his hand and struck him on his head. And when they had mocked him, they took his robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. You know, to be a king, you would need a robe, you would need a crown, you would need a scepter, and you would need praise. And so they, they give the Lord Jesus a robe and a crown and a scepter that they beat him with. And then they mocked him in praise. Probably the most astonishing thing about the entire account is the fact that not one word comes out of the Lord Jesus' mouth. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, who committed no sin to speaking of the Lord Jesus, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. The scripture just gives us insight into the the degree and the level of utter devotion that Jesus had to completing the mission that His Father had sent Him on and the glory due the one and only God of the universe. So if we get back to John 19 now, you look at verse 17. So we get back in our story and He bearing His cross went out to the place called the place of the skull which is in Hebrew Golgotha. Golgotha, where they crucified him. Those first few words of verse 18, just three simple words. They crucified him. How could three words say so much? Only one convicted of a capital offense would ever see the likes of a cross of crucifixion. When you study crucifixion, the only way really to define it or to describe it is, in my words, a spectacle of torture. It's more than just torture. It's a spectacle of torture. It's, it's like a production of torture. It's, it's torture upon torture upon torture. It is for sure the most terrible, cruel death man has ever devised. So the condemned, or in this case, the Lord Jesus would be 
stripped completely naked and left exposed in his agony. One would think already, hasn't it been enough? But really, it's only for him just begun. The best way for me to describe crucifixion is simply to read to you and allow you to listen. The executioner laid the crossbeam behind the accused and brought him down to the ground quickly by grasping his arm and jerking him downward. As the condemned fell, the beam was fitted under the back of his neck. On each side, soldiers quickly knelt down inside of each of the elbows. Once again, the matter was done quickly and efficiently. The executioner wore a leather apron with pockets. He placed two square five-inch long nails between his teeth and a hammer in his hand, kneeling beside the right arm. The soldier whose knee rested on the inside of the elbow held the forearm flat on the board. The executioner then probed with his hand the wrist and the hand of the victim to find the little hollow spot where there would be no vital blood vessel. When he found it, he took one of the square cut iron nails from his teeth. He held it against the spot directly behind the so-called lifeline. He then raised the hammer over the nail head and brought it down with force. As soon as he was satisfied that the victim in struggling could not pull himself free, he did the same on the other side. The two soldiers would then grab each side of the cross beam and the executioner would motion as they lifted. As they pulled up, they dragged the victim by the wrists. As the soldiers reached the upright position, the force of the beam lifting the cross beam ever higher until the feet of the accused was completely off the ground. By then, the accused was writhing in pain. When the cross beam was set firmly, the executioner reached up and set the board which listed the prisoner's name and crime. Then the executioner knelt before the cross. Two soldiers would hurry over to help. Each one would take hold of a leg at the calf. The procedure was to nail the right foot over the left foot. This was probably the most difficult part of their work. If the feet were pulled downward too far and nailed too close to the foot of the cross, the prisoner always died quickly. Over the years, the Romans had learned to push the feet upward, buckling the knees so the condemned man would lean on the nails through his feet and stretch himself upward. The victim was now in the V position with his arms and became conscious of two undurable circumstances. First, that the pain in his wrist was beyond bearing and that the muscle cramps knotted the forearms, upper arms, and the pads of his shoulders. Secondly, that the pectoral muscles on both sides of his chest were momentarily paralyzed. This would induce in him an involuntary panic that while he could draw air into his lungs, he was powerless to exhale. Victims upon the cross would literally 
were literally in constant motion so as to keep breathing, to hang strictly by the hands long enough would prohibit the breathing process. And so he literally rubbed himself up and down and up and down against the rough cut timber in order to keep breathing and to stay alive. The victim would ultimately die. Not from the loss of blood, but from suffocation. He no longer could breathe properly once he became unable to lift himself up. With each second, the pain would mount. The arms, the limbs, the torso screaming with pain. The force of gravity pushing downward on the body with the arms in the V position was using leverage to literally tear apart muscles and tendons and flesh and nerves to where the length of the arms would be increased by several inches. Slowly but steadily, he was being asphyxiated by his own loss of strength and his will to raise himself up for another breath. On occasion, when they wished the condemned to die, after a certain time, they would merely have to break the legs. Thus, the victim would no longer be able to raise themselves up to breathe, but would sag and die. Eventually, though, one left alone would weaken and tire become overcome with pain and struggle and involuntarily begin to sag and lose the will and ability to raise again. Eventually, one would cease movement, struggle, and life. It's difficult to imagine a more terrible suffering and death. The pain, the thirst, the exposure of the elements, the raw flesh, the nakedness, the torture of insects, the brutal spectators, the absolute horror of rigid fixation, all just continuing interminably and combining to make death by crucifixion a supreme humiliation and torture. And so there Jesus hung. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. No, dark, no doubt as darkness began to cheer its victory. As the unseen realm began to parade itself across the sky, touting the failure of the one sent by God, but what we see is a finished supremacy
We'll come back to this text in the coming weeks. But when we think about this finished supremacy, we're no doubt drawn to what Jesus does as he breathes his last breath. And in particular, what he says. If you glance down to verse 30 in John 19, the scripture says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says there was a different story being written that day. It says that at the cross, having disarmed powers and principalities, he made a public spectacle of them all, triumphing over them. That what happened, what looked to be the defeat of light and the defeat of righteousness was in fact the defeat of darkness and the defeat of evil. You see, the crucifixion was meant to be a spectacle of torture. But in reality, Jesus' crucifixion was a spectacle of triumph. When we think about what is accomplished, and when we think about what is happening here, and when we begin to realize with our emotions what has taken place and we we realize that Jesus didn't say I am finished he didn't say you were finished he said it is finished the word finished doesn't mean it's finished as if I'm finished doing something it means completed it means accomplished it is accomplished It's in the tense that tells us that what is accomplished can never be unaccomplished. That what is accomplished is forever done. He had finished the work he had come to accomplish. And now provide salvation for the world. The very people that did this to him. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Jesus also has highly exalted him God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you notice? Did you notice that in verse 30, the scripture says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Have you ever thought about this?
Have you ever been with someone when they died? Have you sat at the bedside of a loved one as they breathed their last breath? And if you have, then you know that 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 verse doesn't make any sense. Because what happens in a natural death is that a person gives up their spirit and then bows their head. First you die, and then your head goes limp. Here we have the opposite. We have Jesus saying, Before I give up my last breath, I humbly bow my head to the Father. I give my life. No one takes it from me. I'm not here because I have to be. I'm not here because I can't do anything about the situation I'm in. I'm not here for any other reason but to be obedient to the glorious plan of my Father, to bring salvation to the world, to show once and for all my love for me and you. You see, the love of God overcame the wrath of God by the death of God. In bowing his head, Jesus is reminding us that it's the love of God that overcomes the wrath of God by the death of God. And so when Jesus says it's finished, he says to me and you, it's finished. All the way finished, it's done. I've done all that needs to be done. I've done everything necessary to do all the things that you need done and that I need done. He's telling us in his death that we can't have gone so far that he can't reach us. We can't have sunk so low that he can't lift us. We can't have strayed so long that he'll never know us. We can't have said so much that he has nothing to say to us. We can't have damaged our soul so much that he can't redeem us. We can't have destroyed ourselves so much that he can't rebuild us. We can't have hated so much that he can't love us. We can't have died so long that he can't raise us. You see, the cross of Christ is God's statement. Of just how much he loves us. The cross represents the irrevocable, undeniable reality that God loves you in ways you cannot imagine. When you think of how much does God love me? Does he really, really love me? 
Does he really love me that much? Does God really? Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you know that whenever we ask that question in Scripture, the Bible almost always speaks of the love of God in the context of the cross. The Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You see, the cross shows the love of God for you. Romans chapter 5, the scripture says, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for will a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says in Isaiah 49 that God loves you so much that He engraved your name on the palm of His hand. The Scripture says in Matthew chapter 10 that He loves you so much that He knows how many hairs are on your head. The Bible says in Psalm 56 that He loves you so much that He saves your tears in a bottle. Jeremiah 31 says that God loves you so much that His love is an everlasting love. You see, Jesus on the cross said yes for you. So that you might live to have opportunity to say yes to him. Make no mistake about it. He didn't hang on that cross beaten and bloody and die for no reason. He died for a purpose. He died for a purpose for you and a purpose for me. He died. Not just to give us freedom, but to give us freedom to walk in His ways and His goodness and for His glory. For us to now complete the task for which we've been called. You see, Jesus said yes for you so that you could say yes to Him. The cross shows us that the mission of the church can never be stopped because death couldn't stop the master of the church. But are we willing What does the picture of the cross incite in you? This is what I thought about this week. I thought about this picture of Jesus being beaten mercilessly. 
I thought about the Savior who knew no sin becoming sin on our behalf. I thought about how unworthy I am to receive that love. I thought about how inconscionable it is that He would take the punishment for me. I thought about what would it take for me to give that for someone else. I thought about all that he did. And then I thought about how oftentimes his people Strive to live on the fringe of His goodness. So oftentimes the question we ask is, what can I get away with? Jesus gave everything on our behalf. And yet what we do is we want to live as close to the sin He was slaughtered to forgive us from as possible. Why do we watch things we shouldn't watch? Why do we say things we shouldn't say? Why is it that we're so flippant about our witness? We go places we ought not go and we think, well... It's not a sin. But you know that your witness is not drawing people closer to Christ. I thought about Jesus hanging on the cross and then I thought about your Facebook page. Is that the best you have to offer? Is that what we've been reduced to? Is that what he died for? So that we could come in here this morning in the comfort and ease of this place and we could sing to God. Loudly and beautifully, glory, glory, we have no other God than Jesus, Lord of all. Is that true? Is He Lord of all or is He just Lord of some of the things? Shouldn't the, the execution of Jesus drive us to want to say yes to Him? I don't want to get away with what I can get away with. I want to give every fiber of my body for His glory. I want the people around me to know that Jesus loves them. He really loves them. And He really died on a real cross for them. And that the Bible tells us that in Him there is life, but there's no other way apart from Him.
But we live on the fringe. What's permissible? You know what I think glorifies the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Is not a people who run around saying, I don't do the things I'm not allowed to do. But who people who live their life saying, I do the things that I want to do in response to what's been done for me. Because he said it's finished. So what is he calling you to do? What is he calling you to change? What, 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 is, he, what is he saying to you? And in light of what he did on the cross, what are we waiting for? What more does he need to do to show his love and devotion? It's not wait, it's not maybe, it's not someday. He didn't look at the horror of the cross and say, maybe, someday. He said yes, so that you could say yes. Because the cross proves that whatever it is he's calling you to do is far and away the best thing you could ever do. And for you to think this morning about all the ways it might inconvenience your life or how it may cramp your style or how it may... Say yes. Yes, God. Yes. Because it is finished, we're not finished.